Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm an associate director of the Center for Faith and Culture and associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture, celebrating 25 years, brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. The Center seeks to understand and impact in a meaningful way the relationship between and among the many facets of the American way of life in relation to God's ongoing loving encounter with humanity. Today's guest is Sarah Cortez. Sarah is a member of the Texas Institute of Letters and fellow of the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. She has poems, essays, book reviews, and short stories published and anthologized. She is a winner of the Penn Texas Literary Award and has written and edited award-winning books in contests around the globe. She's both a Houston and Texas finalist for Poet Laureate. She has been published in archdiocesan venues such as the Texas Catholic Herald uh, and has been published by Benedict 16th Institute of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. Well, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'd like to talk uh, about poetry. You're both a, a poet and a police officer. Um, so we want to talk about poetry in general, your poetry and specifically, and then also just the sort of state of the Catholic arts, the state of Catholic poetry today. Uh, but before we get into any of that, let's talk a bit about you. Tell us about your religious identity growing up. Were you? Uh, did you have a, a, a strong Catholic household or maybe you're a convert to the church? Um, uh, tell us what that was like growing up. Uh, I grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic here in Houston, Texas at St. Peter the Apostle Parish. Uh, in the Riverside area. My mom was Catholic. My dad um, was baptized Catholic as a baby, but his mom died when he was about five years old. So he didn't really have much of a religious upbringing. You know, life was tough sure. uh, back then in the early 20th century. and But he converted to Catholicism in order to Sort of, or I shouldn't say converted, he reacquainted himself with Catholicism <laughs> in order to marry my mom sure. during World War II. I bet they were pretty strict about that back back then. Well, they Vatican were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did he ever tell you stories about that? Like, did, did he feel that he was being forced to, to become reacquainted? Or was it something that he was excited to do? Or is it just one of the things that he thought that he had to do in order to marry your mom? Well, you know, I don't know. Back in that era... People didn't talk about things like that. Mm, yeah, that's true. They were a lot more practical. They didn't waste a lot of <laughs> mental energy, you know, uh, right. uh, trying to create feelings of being victimized 30 years before. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so that was the, your parents. Uh, so then how did, how did that religious uh, Catholic identity manifest itself for you as a child? Well, I went to Catholic grade school and high school. I uh, had a great, incredible uh, intellectually uh, rigorous Catholic upbringing mm -hmm. uh, back when the Dominican sisters were into that. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was and the fathers, the priest at our, at St. Peter the Apostle at that time were the La Salette fathers. Okay. And they were certainly strong models of, uh, shall we say, both virtue and, and intellectual rigor mm -hmm. and uh belief in the faith. And so it was a very uh, sturdy upbringing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what does it mean to say that that you received a sort of intellectually rigorous education from the Dominicans? Because as you know well know, one of the criticisms of, of Catholic education today is is they the, the faith is watered down, and that's part of the reason why young people are leaving the church is because they don't know it. So what what substantively did you receive from those Dominicans that made it a, a rigorous Catholic intellectual um, education? Well, I was taught to think. Mm-hmm. I was taught to use logic. Uh, not only, I mean, it could be logic in uh, solving the algebra problems. It could be logic in analyzing a particular uh, question in English class or history class or biology class. But it was, you were expected to bring your entire ability of both logic and reason to religion as well. Mm-hmm which in no way was viewed as automatically destroying the joy or mystery of the faith. Sure. So it was a very, um, and, and the truth, uh, I don't think, at least the, of course, I grew up in a time when America, if not the whole world, was much more naive. Mm. So we were not, you know, we were not in sixth grade, you know, looking at pornography sites sure. or whatever, right. as happens a lot today. Uh, but, we still had our um, we still had our our moments of doubt. I mean, that's part of the life of anybody's faith. Sure. But the answers and people who were willing to discuss the questions were readily available, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think enjoyed the discussion. People didn't back off, and uh, or the teachers, the priests and nuns didn't back off and say, "Oh well, I just don't. I'm not going to talk about." xyz issue because Mm -hmm. that you know god doesn't want me to talk about it or whatever or i'm sorry i'm probably not answering that question very well but (laughs) um, i'm I'm guessing also a a part of your education um was was poetry um you're you're a poet i'm guessing that that interest in poetry began as a young woman and in particular in the, the classroom, is that fair to say? Well, it's fair to say, but it's not correct. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Stuart. Uh, I, I guess mean, I had this idealized vision of education yeah. back then of people sitting around reading poetry and pontificating on the bi- Well, but they, they that's might my have. Naive, my yeah. naivete, I suppose. Well, no, that's, I mean, that in, in the life of some poets and writers do start out that way, but mm-hmm. mine did not. Okay. I was, I was sort of a B-string athlete. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in sports and sure. always did a lot of sports. I played piano. Um, every girl was in the church choir. We we grew up singing Gregorian chant. Um, every boy was an altar boy. So th- so it was a, a, a different world for mm-hmm. sure, but a good one. Um, and I actually didn't start getting interested in poetry until I was in my 30s. Okay. And it was very happens. It was very happenstance. My goal in life was never to be a poet. Mm-hmm. Was your in, the, the spark of your interest in poetry? Was that related in somehow to Catholicism, or was it completely a, initially a secular interest and then became sort of a Catholic interest of yours? The the second option. Okay. How did a, you get into poetry? Uh, I picked up a book in the Museum of Fine uh, uh, Arts bookstore written by uh, the uh, Apache and Mexican-American poet Jimmy Santiago Baca. Mm-hmm. Uh, more or less my age range, but very, very tough barrio, ghetto, horrible life. Sure. You know, mom's a drug addict and 
so forth. And um, even though my there's nothing in my family history on either side that mimics any small portion of his life, mm-hmm. his poetry just set me on fire. His mm-hmm. use of language, his use of image, mm-hmm. his concise, uh, concise, conciseness of conveying what he needed to convey. Um, and I just got, it was like flipping a switch. I got very, very interested. I had originally been a fiction writer. Okay. And all my initial um, three semesters of creative writing were in the short story. But once I read him and started learning and sort of a process of self-education along with, I would take maybe one workshop a week. I mean, I was working full time. Sure. First in the corporate world and then in the police world. So... Uh, I didn't have a lot of time to study. I wasn't the age to be an undergraduate. Sure, already right. had, already had two master's degrees. Right. So, I, in fact, I was offered a, a spot to go to the creative writing uh, department at University of Houston and get a PhD or MFA in creative writing and poetry. And I mm-hmm. just, I didn't have the slightest interest. I wanted to earn some money, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Pay those bills. <laughs> After two master's degrees, I wanted to earn money. Sure. Uh, when and how did that the poetry interest then shift towards exploring Catholic poetry? I would say that shifted. It started shifting actually through the mechanism of writing a memoir that was published in 2012 mm-hmm. called Walking Home. Okay. Now, that was the second book I ever wrote. It was a, about the fifth or sixth one of mine that was published because I had a very difficult time finding a publisher. Sure. Uh, probably mostly because it's mixed genre, mm-hmm. half is poetry and half is prose. Um, but in the process of writing that, and uh, we we sort of skip from early childhood to now, but in there was 35 years when I was not a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I was gone from the Catholic faith for a long time. Okay. Uh, over half of my life, <laughs> actually. Um and so I came back about 11 years ago, Okay. and that was roughly around the time where I wrote that book, a little later than when I wrote that book. And so that that mechanism of trying to write about s- spiritual, the ultimate spiritual, which is divine, mm-hmm. God, uh, and trying to couch it in language, image, and form that the literary world would appreciate mm-hmm. uh, is plus becoming more and more of a Catholic um, or more and more trying to go deeper in my faith, my reading, my, so forth. All of that sort of snowballed. Mm-hmm. So you had been interested in poetry and investigating that for quite a while before you came back that to happened. Catholicism. That is okay. correct. Yeah. Because I got interested in poetry right around, maybe in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Um, also, as mentioned earlier, you uh, uh, were were or are in the police force for many decades. Tell us about the sort of uh, burgeoning interest in that. Well, I, um, I, when I had my corporate career, worked downtown, uh, the neighborhood I lived in at the time, Montrose, sort of where we're sitting right now, right. actually, right. Uh, had a horrible uh, drug and prostitution related. Mm-hmm crimes. Sure. And there's a lot of research to to show that that crimes like prostitution have a lot of spillover related crime. Mm-hmm. And they basically destroy neighborhoods. Crime always destroys neighborhoods. Sure. 
And so a bunch of us were doing civic work, trying to work proactively with the Houston Police Department and any city department who would talk to us to try to get rid of the problems we had. Mm -hmm. And so in that process, I started meeting a lot of police officers and meeting the real people who were doing the work Mm -hmm. and working with them on certain projects uh, showed me that I had been completely wrong about what I thought about police officers. Mm -hmm. And I started falling in love with the mission, the public safety mission of police work, which is to keep people safe. Sure. And the people who want to do bad things to the good people are the criminals. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it I it I just it was almost like falling in love with a man. <laughs> I just fell head over heels in love with public ser- safety sure. issues and mechanisms and the the CJ the criminal justice system. Um, which is not a perfect system. There's no system that is. I mean, we can look at our, you know, church and say, we know there's no human system that's perfect. But yeah, so that, and you know, that worked really well with poetry Mm. because I'd been a poet for some time and Mm -hmm. a published fiction writer for some time. And, uh, well, in poetry, um, typically you have to be really good at looking at details Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to extrapolate from details to big picture whatever that big picture is Mm -hmm. you know it's going to vary obviously from human to human and you know mood to mood and blah blah you know history to history individual Mm -hmm. histories but um in police work you have to be really 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 adept at looking at details and interpreting those details Mm -hmm. and noticing those details and documenting those details. And so it's really a sort of a perfect match. Hmm. Um, So, so you talk about being a poet and a police officer and how they, uh, how being a poet sort of um, makes you a better police officer and vice versa. That's what was about that. <laughs> the other side. So, talk about being a police officer, then informing your poetry. What? How? Do, what does that mean? Well, um, you know, uh, there's a, a, a really well-known uh, American poet um, who has written extensively on blue-collar poetry mm-hmm. of America, because America basically used to be ninety-eight percent blue-collar, sure. and now it's almost the reverse. Mm-hmm. And he has made the comment, if you look at any uh, 20th, 20th century anthology of American poetry and look at the subject matter, you come away with the conclusion that there is no poet in America who actually works. <laughs> <laughs> and, Sounds like a good life to me. You know, uh, yeah, don't you wish we all had it? Right. But, uh, but there are people who, who work not only white-collar uh, type jobs, mm-hmm. But there are people who do jobs like plumbing, AC repair, police work. I sure. mean, this is all blue-collar work. Right. Uh, doesn't mean you're any less professional, mm-hmm. or you shouldn't be, but it is blue-collar work and should be acknowledged for such. And that is going to inform what you write, or mm-hmm. I think it should inform mm-hmm. what you write. Mm-hmm. I, I um, Yes, there's a place for great metaphysical poetry. I mean, you can look at you know, John Donne and 
on and on. Sure. But John Donne's poetry is richly, richly, heavily informed by what was going on in his world. Mm-hmm. You know, the discoveries of new continents and scientific discoveries. I mean, it was very particularly set within the setting mm-hmm. uh, of of what was going on in his day-to-day life and in the culture. And so I think, you know, those of us who are blue-collar poets, and I say that with a great amount of pride, mm-hmm. you know, we have a... Um, we really have... I think it's... We have more material, mm-hmm. sheer narrative material, than somebody that's sitting behind a desk. Doesn't necessarily mean we're better poets. Mm-hmm. Certainly doesn't mean we're necessarily better anything else you know but the stuff of real life whatever you want to call that you know the dirt the detritus the the whatever you know the experiences uh if you're a thinking person if you've uh trained your imagination and somebody has trained your brain so that you are a thinking person, mm-hmm. then you're going to take that stuff of life, whatever it is, and you're going to, you have the ability, if you train your ability and skills, to make something very interesting, whether it's a mm-hmm. poem or a cake or a garden or an essay or a child or whatever. So so being a police officer gives you that sort of blue-collar subject matter, but does it shape your poetry in some other way? I mean, uh, maybe this is too dim of a view on my part, but I would imagine when you're a police officer and day in and day out, you deal with the worst of the human condition. You talk mm-hmm. about poetry, uh, uh, pornography and other things like that in Montrose. Um, does that Does that sort of bleed into your poetry and you're writing these sort of poems about, you know, how horrible humanity is and we're all sinners and... Uh, or, or is it- well, I mean, it could. I think every mm-hmm. individual is different. Sure. I mean, the, you can read some of my police poems mm-hmm. that are more harder edged mm-hmm. and and sound more cynical than others. Right. I mean, I definitely believe in the triumph of the human spirit. Sure. Um, I mean, I'd go crazy if I didn't. Right. <laughs> you have to, you know, you sort of got to believe in that if you believe in God, I think. Sure. But that doesn't mean that if I see somebody coming at me with a knife that I'm going to feel sorry for them. <laughs> right. You know, I sure. mean, you got to balance your your ability to deal with reality with um, what what you learn from God in the New Testament and the Old about how to how he wants you to deal with reality. And then if you're lucky, maybe you bring some of those strands together when you sit down to write a poem or an essay Mm. or or even a piece of fiction. There's somebody famous, I'm sorry, I can't remember who, who said about Catholic writers. Well, if you think uh, Catholic writers write about, you know, this highfalutin, spiritual, in the clouds, angels everywhere stuff, Uh, that's crazy because if you look at the best of Catholic, especially fiction writers over the last, uh, you know, oh, I would say from the 20s onward, maybe from, you know, the 1880s onward. I mean, you can go back to Dostoevsky and so forth. They're all writing about sinners. Sure. Because if you're Catholic, you have probably a very fine appreciation for what sin is. Absolutely. <laughs> would you mind reading us uh, one of your poems? And no, t- tell I, would, I would love to. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm going to read you a poem I think of as sort of a luminous poem. Great. Because it's one of my favorites and comes from my background as a child with a wonderful dad who was an outdoorsman. So he was a great hunter and fisherman. Great. So um, it's entitled, The Flounder Are Running. If it was only once, then that night has grown inside me to a thousand nights. When fishermen and hip waiters gathered near San Louis Pass, pulling small wooden boats with kerosene lanterns to gig flounder. Me, blanketed on mom's shoulder, dad in long khaki sleeves and ball cap, the sharp tines of each suspended gig, a long steel fork. Each flounder's faint contour appearing, then vanishing in murky water and rippled sand. Dad's excitement illuminated each night a thousand times in each yellow-flamed mantle glowing over brownish gulf, in each flounder's outline in sand, when he saw that which I couldn't and still can't, though I've searched a thousand gilded nights. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. If let's let's role play for a second. Let's say yes. you were teaching a course uh, uh -huh. of poetry, and and that wasn't your poem, and you were in a classroom with students. Right. How would you analyze that? How what what would you ask your students questions about? Well, it, if it was a literature course or a craft course, because I taught differently. Okay. Okay. Well, let's well, say. Craft. Okay. How would you say what's the difference between those two so the, approaches? The literature is when the thing you're looking at is already dead and you're poking it with a, a rod. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> That's what a literature course is. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> and my apologies to all your wonderful listeners who, who are students of literature and professors who are uh, professors of literature. So anyway, with great apologies. Uh, but the... Um, uh, the craft course is when you're you're trying to breathe into and create something living. Mm -hmm. You're not working with something that's already finalized okay. and dead, you know, and you're just coming behind and being a critic. So in a craft course, you're working with a living, breathing entity or, or you're trying to create a living, breathing entity that is going to be worth reading, that's going to have unique insights, that's going to um, bring something to the reader that the reader hasn't considered before. Um, I mean, that's your goal. I mean, it's very hard to do. Sure. Uh, especially, that's why sometimes it's harder to write poetry if you're a PhD po uh, student in poetry than if you're an undergraduate. Because <laughs> the undergraduate hasn't tried to memorize and stuff into his or her brain the last uh, 400 years of poetry sure right so uh, so the undergrad can generally write better poetry but anyway that's a different issue <laughs> oh my goodness i'm gonna get in real trouble here well i mean i'm i'm going on experience i mean sure. i've taught all kinds of master classes mm -hmm. and 
other, you know, university classes and and I've taught poetry to everybody you can teach poetry sure. to. So Well, I've, uh, I've heard, I remember in graduate school, professors <laughs> saying they would rather deal with undergraduates than PhD students because yeah. the PhD students are just so much more of a headache than the undergrads. The undergrads are open, uh, sort of, a yeah. spo- they're a sponge where they the, can the PhD be, yeah. students are just sort of yeah. grizzled. And- Sometimes those PhD students, unless they have really good mentors that can show them the proper virtues, and I'm talking about virtue as we deal with virtue in the Catholic sense. If you don't have somebody who models enforces and shows really good virtues like patience, Mm -hmm. perseverance, fortitude, you know, so on and so forth. Those PhD students, man, they can get awful mean (laughs) (laughs) towards one another. You know, that's the sadness of it. That's the sadness of it. I was in graduate school for 10 years, so yes. I'm well aware of that. So, so you're an expert about that, which I speak. So if I was teaching yeah, a, so a craft course, right. I would, first of all, I'll just hold it up for your delight and edification. Okay. I would say, look at the form. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing you notice? Well, you notice that the stanzas are couplets or mm-hmm. two, two-line stanzas. So why is that? How does that slow or speed up the movement mm-hmm. of the, the reader through the poem? Okay. What do you think the poet is trying to accomplish with that? I would refer them to um, uh, the very famous dictum in, um, uh, in poetry, which says uh, form mirrors meaning. Mm-hmm. So you don't ever have either meaning or form separately. They must be, com- in, in the best of poems, they're always completely married. So, so let's talk about the form. Why is that? Why doesn't this rhyme? What are the expectations of a rhyming poem mm-hmm. versus a non-rhyming set of lines? Mm-hmm. Um, I would talk to them about title. I would ask them, what are the words you really notice? Mm-hmm. You know, like circle or draw a box around every single word in here that's your anchor. Mm-hmm. You have to know what images and words. Well, what words are your anchors and what images are they attaching to them? And when you're asking them these questions, are you just asking them for their opinions or have you provided them with some sort of theoretical framework and then they as students try to take that framework and Mm. apply it in some way to the particular poem? So as you go through that semester, you have your lesson plans are are arranged so that uh, each concept has uh, examples. Okay. Okay, so they're learning the concept, they're looking at real life examples, and then the homework assignments that they have for that class period of that week uh, assist them actually putting it into practice or learning how hard it is to put it into practice. So you're constantly building this uh, so series of steps on the ladder so that their meaning is ascending while their craft is ascending. Sure. Or their, their, their craft forces their understanding of meaning to ascend. Mm-hmm. So, um, you uh, already mentioned you have several uh, master's degrees. Um, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but um, uh, in religion and in um, classics, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. and my area of expertise is the, is late antiquity. So this is something that interests me. So we've talked about sort of how um, poli- your police work has informed your poetry. Uh-huh. How has your your studies of of antiquity, the classics? And uh, uh, your study of religion, uh, in, in an intellectual sense, how has that formed informed your poetry? Uh, that's a very good question. Well, I went and was interested in getting a master's in 
classics because I already knew Latin and I uh, had taught myself ancient Greek and I wanted, and I was very interested in comparative mythology. So the classics is sort of the basis of any branching out in terms of studying. For me, anyway, I saw that as, and, and I had a very excellent mentor who had taken that path himself. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a suitable path. Um, I think it infor- inf- informed my poetry mostly through attention to detail of breath and and word meaning. Okay. I, I think the further along we... Well, I've heard people say that we're already in the dark ages in America in terms of literacy. Mm. Uh, so I get, I'm sure there are people who agree and people who disagree. Uh, there has does seem to be, have been a sharp tailing off of people's uh, desire to learn vocabulary, mm-hmm. even pretty simple, you know, sure. vocabulary. But um, you know, I love those words. English language is one of the great benefits of English language is we have so many Latinate words and then we have so many Indo-European words. And so we get this amazing array of, of words and sounds that when you put them on a page and really study them and carefully consider them like you should be doing if you're trying to write poetry or read it, mm-hmm. you get amazing levels of what's called subtext or the the connotations of words that rest below the the denotation of words. Sure. So for classical studies, looking at Greek and Latin uh, language, even though Latin didn't have this enormous vocabulary that we that we now have in English, sure. it I think it informed just a sort of interest mm-hmm. and and maybe a little bit of a knowledge base. Although I do certainly still use my dictionary. <laughs> we all do. Now they've just switched online online dictionaries. Yeah. Except they're very you know, they're very thin. Thin meaning they don't really go into a lot of examples. Yeah, online dictionaries. M- online dictionaries. Yeah, the yeah. free ones, yeah. I think Yeah, the you free. can you can get in depth ones, but they're behind a paywall. Yeah, I bet yeah. they are. Yeah, sure. What are the types of the- are there themes that you've noticed in your own poetry looking back of just uh, issues that continue to nag you that you wrestle with in your poetry or are you sort of just all over the place and whatever sort of strikes you in the moment that you want to write about? Well, people that are much more attuned to these kind of things than the, the writer him, mm. himself or herself sure. in my case right. have pointed out, and I think this is accurate, I write an awfully lot about home. Mm. What is it? Mm-hmm. Where is it? How does it function looking for it? What is it like not to be able to find it? Um, I write a lot about death. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you become a police officer, you certainly should have a very uh, close relationship with death just because you you might die today at work, you know? (laughs) And uh, um, uh, in my first book, I think I wrote a lot more about sort of uh, erotic kind of things uh that that's not something i write about anymore but uh at that time i did what is it about home that 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 has hooked itself into you and you continue to explore that i think gosh you know i don't know if i can answer that very adequately i think for me home uh 
we were sort of forced out of our home due to the violence of the civil rights era in, a, in the mid-60s. The uh, 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 black uh, folks wanted our neighborhood, and they didn't want anybody living there that was not black. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of violence and a lot of uh, heartache, certainly for my family, because, you know, my parents lost everything. Mm-hmm. And we didn't we didn't even dislike black people. You know, it was, right. it was just like that kind of horrible situation always is, whether it's between Northern Irish and the Protestants or whatever, sure. you know. So, um, you know, home is just something that, that um, I, ha- I have a lot of friends who grew up under communism mm. in Europe. Okay. And the communists were very keen on destroying everybody's home. Mm. Uh, you know, if you lived in, you might live on a farm or, vineyard or something that your family had had for 300 years well they they made sh- of course they 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 made sure that the state now owned it right but then one of the first things they did was move in you know 15 strangers into your three rooms sure so home is something that a, lo- a lot of institutions especially now i think secular institutions related to the culture of death want to destroy Right. The home, not just a family, mm-hmm. but the home, because there's all kinds of stats, even uh, in families where um, parents, like one parent, there's a tragic loss and one to death of one parent. The single parent that goes on raising those kids, the stats for those kids' lives in terms of stability of marriage, uh, continuing in, in the faith, and on and on are very good, which is not the same as if in, in families where kids have a divorce. Yeah. So it's not just the factor that there's one parent only, it's the circumstances that cause that. So, so when you look at circumstances that cause a loss of the home, mm-hmm. the, the greater psychological, emotional home, um, there's a, and of course, a spiritual home. I mean, God is our spiritual home. Yeah. But we're all, you know, we're dealing with the metaphysical world in our day-to-day mm-hmm. rela- you know, life, but we're mostly dealing with the practical world, the physical world. Mm-hmm. And so I think our part of our spiritual lives is continually trying to find whatever kind of answers we're looking for on those in those two different planes. Yeah. Um, and if we're lucky, we get certain people who can do that for us emotionally, mentally, psychologically and hopefully spiritually. I don't know why this comes to mind, but um, your point made me think of St. Thomas More, who's one of mm-hmm. my patrons. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think he was a fairly young man. His first wife died, and mm-hmm. uh, they had some kids. And he got remarried within like a month. And when I first read that, I was sort of shocked and a little offended by that, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. mourning the memory of your wife. And your and he did love his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but after I kind of sort of calmed down from that for a minute, I realized, no, he's doing exactly what you're talking about. He was he had kids and he wanted to create mm-hmm. a home for them. And he knew that that included a mother figure, even if it's not a mm-hmm. biological mother. And he ended up, mm-hmm. you know, loving his second wife, too. Um, but I think he had an insight about home mm-hmm. and family that, to your point about the culture of death, is mm-hmm. we've lost it. We don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how might being a Catholic poet be different from someone who isn't a Catholic? Obviously, the subject might matter might be different, right? You might write about priests or 
bishops or something like that. But on a deeper level, how does the Catholic sensibility or the Catholic imagination drive your poetry differently than someone else? Maybe in other, in other words, what does it mean to be a Catholic poet? Um, well, I think if you're, if you're serious about your faith, I'm going to, they used to say, call it a practicing Catholic. You know, it's, <laughs> one gets in trouble with these terms these sure, days, absolutely. but let's say you're more than just somebody who says, oh, I'm Catholic, but I support abortion, you know, which you, you can't do, but you know, people say it and try think they're living it out. I'm saying if you take your faith very seriously and you really try in some fashion as suits your, your, your life to go deeper into your spiritual life, um, by reading, by prayer, etc., um, then I think you are going to automatically have a Catholic worldview. And part of that worldview has to, at least as it comes out in art, in writing, for instance, is that you believe uh, there, there is a big picture, quote-unquote. It's God's big picture. It's not yours. Right. You might want it to be yours occasionally <laughs> when you get frustrated, as we all do, but sure. it's God's big picture. It's called salvation history, uh, it, you know, um, and so that that belief in that is more than probably 95% of the people have these mm. days. Right. I don't know. I, I'm Certain other statistics I quoted, I can tell you, I know for sure. This, I don't know for sure, but... If you believe there's meaning to life, and that meaning is uh, centered on the Trinity and the fact that Christ came, was incarnated, and saved us, then uh, you automatically have tools at your disposal, both creatively and internally, that most people do not have. I think that's one of God's incredible unimaginably generous gifts to people of faith. Absolutely. The other thing I think you believe, and again, if, if you don't believe in God, you don't think this, but if you have a, if you're truly Catholic, you believe there's a reason for suffering. There is a meaning. It doesn't mean you want to suffer. doesn't mean you welcome suffering necessarily. doesn't mean that you don't, you know, bitch and moan when you're going through stuff. Sure. But it does mean that you somehow, whether it's in the moment or eventually, you you find meaning in that suffering by uniting it to Christ's suffering on the cross. Mm-hmm. And that, um, gosh, doesn't the world need that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, and we all need that because we can look perfect on the outside. We can have a good haircut and nice clothes and you know halfway decent car and awards who is that famous french chef recently who committed suicide uh anthony bourdain yes okay so this guy has it all right Right. the beautiful women the restaurants the careers the money the tv blah 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 and there he goes doing something really stupid Mm -hmm. uh well, stupid is probably the wrong word. Really sad. Yeah. Just really, really tragic that he none of that had any meaning for him. Now, we as Christians or Catholics believe there is meaning, and the meaning is not in the 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 
girlfriends and the TV shows and the fancy restaurants and the piles of money in the bank. But so many people don't have any sensibility of that. And so, yes, and I think if you have that sensibility, your writing is different. Mm -hmm. I went to a play written by Edward Albee, uh, who's now deceased, a couple years ago. It was the most depressing artistic event I think I've attended in my life because a whole me well first of all is horribly uh, hateful towards women especially older women Mm -hmm. Uh, and but the whole meaning to the whole thing the whole messy high drama guilt-laden situation in this play was there is no meaning to anything sure nothing it just made me feel so sorry for that guy. <laughs> yeah. And he used to live in Houston here. Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah, I uh I, I think the more the deeper I get into my Catholicism, the less I can stomach anything postmodern, postmodern theater, yeah. art, whatever it is. Would you mind reading us uh, another one of your poems? Not at all. Can I read you another poem from my childhood? Please. Okay, so um and these poems, do you want to tell us out of which of your many published sure, publications you, these sure. are coming from? Thank you for asking. This is against, uh, out of uh, a new and selected volume of my poetry called Against Sky's Warm Belly. Against Sky's Warm Belly, <laughs> a new and selected poems published by Texas Review Press, one of my current publishers. I think this is my fifth or sixth book with them. Okay, so this is... Um, entitled Locust. Swollen and hunched into fetal crouch, the small beast has quit his split shell. I find it on a sidewalk, leading to nothing of moment for me today, except my present memory clear from childhood when we hoarded those translucent husk, thinking them too ugly, yet too marvelous to squander. Thank you. Is You're it welcome. is it vulgar of me to ask a poet to unpack her own poet for us? <laughs> is that like the is that like you don't say Macbeth in the theater type thing? Oh, like, I don't is know. That, is that, is that I forbidden? I wouldn't worry about that okay. if I was you. Okay. Uh, well, I wanted to write a memory about a very something that really fascinated me as a kid, okay. and what that was. We we call them locusts. They're not. They're. The, I think they're technically cicadas. But okay. I wanted to use a childhood term, which sure. is locust. Um, and the uh, this the shell they they molt out of their shells, and we would find their shells when I was a kid. It was still safe to. to play outside right. you know we had this glorious glorious big backyard and um so we would find these shells sort of attached to the barks of trees sometimes during the day we never found an actual creature um and we just and i i, I wanted to try to convey how magical they were for those because they were so ugly yeah and they were so rare and so uh so the form here on the page, of course, your, right. your listeners can't see the page, but right. the four, again, we have two line couplets. Except for right in the middle. Except for right in the middle, and you have one word, which is... Today. Today. And so that's, just, if you count the lines above and below, everything is leading right to that word, because that's where the shift goes from the memory to what 
the poet is thinking Four today. Four couplets on either side. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Good. See, good math. <laughs> that's about the extent of my math. I can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and that's about it. So, and I like, um, I, I like to play around a lot with syntax. Like one of the things I like to assign advanced poetry students, if, if they're working poets, because you have to be a, a working poet, meaning you write most days of the week in order mm-hmm. to, to have the facility to do something like this typically. But I will assign them all kinds of different, like in a class that meets once a week, every week I assign them a different poem to look at. And we discuss it and we sort of analyze it by another poet. Mm-hmm. A wide range of poets, all different styles, all different voices, all different everything. And each week, the next, the following week, their assignment is to bring in something that they have written mimicking the use of imagery, form, and syntax mm-hmm. of the, the, the teaching poem, the mentor text, shall we say. And so, mo- see, most people start writing poetry. They write two or three lines in some class or whatever, and somebody says, oh, that's great, mm-hmm. you know, a parent or a teacher, and then they write that way for the next rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an extremely limited vocabulary of form, but we all do it. I mean, sure. it's just, it's natural, right? And so, but if you're going to, if you're really going to um, explore and be a professional writer, it's to your best interest to have a bigger, just like a bigger vocabulary of words, mm-hmm. well, a bigger vocabulary of form and syntax. Mm-hmm. Because every uh, flash of inspiration or whatever you want to call it that you want to write a poem is, it is going to probably, if you let it, involve both different form and different syntax. You look at some of the best poets in America and certainly in the world, and that's pretty much a case. I mean... Mm-hmm. Not all, but a lot of them. Yeah. Is anybody doing epic poetry anymore? I'm, I'm a, Very yeah, I few, say, but where, I where tell you that. Anymore? Yeah, there there is a wonderful gentleman. Uh, his first, uh, he's a professor at, um, uh, gosh, what's that university in um, Grand near Granbury? Sol Ross, not Sol Ross. Anyway, sorry, but he does epic, okay. iambic pentameter, oh, wow. heavily classical. <laughs> And he can write the, and he's brilliant. I mean, he's just wonderful. Sure. His stuff is just wonderful. Yeah. Most people today are probably like me in that they didn't receive much poetry uh, in, in their education growing up. I went to public school, but that's probably true about Catholic schools as well. To put it bluntly, our culture doesn't value poetry. Um, obviously, that's a mistake. Why, why is that a mistake? How can poetry help enrich our lives in ways that the other arts can't do? Poetry in a lot of ways, is about silence and space. And if our culture needs anything, it needs more silence, Mm -hmm. and we all need more space. (laughs) Amen. I think we're all just so fed up with having to listen to other people's cell phone conversations and intimate details uh, uh, of whatever, you know. So, and of course, we know from many great spiritual writers that it's in the silence that you find God. Mm, absolutely. So poetry forces, if if you allow yourself, it forces you to slow down. And since most of the page is blank, it forces your mind to allow for space. Mm-hmm. And, of course, poetry was originally a, a verbal art. Uh, it's 
not so much now. Uh, there are few poets who can read their work well, even if the book's in front of them, because <laughs> they mumble. <laughs> you know, it's just public speaking's a lost right. art as well. You know, what can That's we say? True. We yeah. all well, we all fall prey to that. <laughs> but I think poetry forces attention if it's done right. Both the writing and the reading of it forces attention on detail, and I, it. I mean, nobody would. At least most poets I know wouldn't pick up a book of, of really good literary poetry and try to read the whole book at one sitting. Mm-hmm. They might pick up one or two, maybe three, maybe just one, and sure. read it and think about it and open that back, book back up again and read it again. Mm-hmm. It's So if you allow it, it can really slow you down. Sure. Sort of like a, a Lexio Divina. Yeah, yeah, it was exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, the arts today, poetry today, Catholic arts today. Many people today, and I'll admit I'm one of those people, bemoan the state of the Catholic arts today. Um, you know, we used to have the, the, you know, you look through history, uh, the greatest poetry, the greatest art, the greatest architecture, the greatest novels. The greatest music. The greatest music. <laughs> it was us, right? Oh, and now, yeah. let's be honest, the last 75 years, it's pretty pretty awful. Um do you have any insight about why we, what happened, and and where are the good painters and the good uh, architects today? Um, do you well, have any thoughts about that, or am I being yeah. overly pessimistic? Well, um, I think there are many, many hopeful signs, and I think, uh, and I remind myself of this all the time. Uh, you know, one of the devil's greatest tools is to make all of us, whoever the us is, but I'm going to say you know, people who believe in, in God, for instance, uh, that we're alone mm-hmm. and it's hopeless to fight the battle. It's just all hopeless. Just right. give up. I mean, I occasionally meet people in restaurants. Somehow we wind up talking. I tell them about my nonprofit Catholic literary arts and being a Catholic writer and just being passionate about educating kids and supporting adults. And, and they're like, Oh, Oh, we're so excited. You know, we've been so depressed. We feel so alone. Mm. And they're Methodist right. or they're Episcopal or they're Baptist. and But they are having the same thoughts that many of us Catholics are having, mm-hmm. you know, that it's just hopeless. That there's yeah. too many people out there who are, you know, believe in things that are counter to what God has revealed sure. and teaches. So, um, so I think we're not alone. Okay. I think there's great signs of hope. I think... Well, here's something I learned a long time ago, and I learned it because I was afraid to put an overtly Catholic book cover on my first spiritual memoir. In, in 2000, I had to make that decision in 2012. I was scared because most of my awards at that time, and actually still, are literary awards, and I knew the literary world would think I had an IQ of 33 sure. uh, if I had an overtly religious image of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Anne on my memoir. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, now I'm embarrassed to say, but at that time it was a real sort of spiritual quandary for me. But I was lucky enough to see a press release about a a famous Catholic author. Mm -hmm. He's now a very dear friend. Uh, But uh, I saw a press release, and it had listed Catholic author. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen that in, sure. tw- you know, X number of years of going to literary events and so forth. So I went, I drove to Conroe. I got there early. I told him who I was. I told him about my quadrantry. And we sat down, and we had this very intense 
conversation. Mm -hmm. He was so kind. <coughs> Excuse me. And he, uh, you know, sort of gave me some things to think about. But one of the things he said is, don't be embarrassed to be Catholic. We have the best intellectual history on the planet. So you need to start educating yourself mm -hmm. and start reading and becoming familiar with all this, but don't ever let anybody embarrass you intellectually, particularly about being Catholic. And that was a transformative moment? That changed, that really, really changed me. And so I think uh, uh, because of certain things I read, you know, I try to keep myself apprised of what's going on nationally, <clears throat> both in the writing world and the arts world on the Catholic uh, arenas. And there are amazing artists who want to paint uh, traditional images, sacred images, and they are doing it, and they have mm -hmm. more work than they can handle. So is the narrative <clears throat> that there is uh, not much of a, uh, a Catholic art scene, is that just a, a false narrative, would you say? Yes. <laughs> Heck yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I think that doesn't... Um, mitigate the need for you and I and everyone else doing their part. Mm -hmm. But because that author, and it was Paul Mariani, incredible Catholic author, mm -hmm. because Paul Mariani was brave enough to put in his press release Catholic author sure. and be known as a Catholic author. Here I am all these years later, brave enough to start a Catholic nonprofit. And there are sure. many Catholic nonprofits who don't even want to be known as Catholic. Right. They try to hide behind sort of this generic, um, you know, the whatever, you know, grains of wheat. or Now, that's fine. That's their decision. I cannot mm. make or judge their decision just like, you know, people shouldn't mind. Right. But for me, yes, I'm proud to be Catholic. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but yeah. off the top of your head, can you, is there like a syllabus of great uh, con contemporary poets and, and novelists and painters that you, when you think about the scene today, the art scene that you, that these people come to mind immediately that in, in addition yeah. to your, your writing? In addition to my, well, you don't have to <laughs> say that actually. Um, and I guess, guess we should probably clarify for your audience that okay. I would never teach a poem of mine in a class of mine because okay. that's an ethical Violation. Okay. For me, anyway. Sure. Uh, other writers may not see it that way for themselves. Um, well, for the, two of the greatest, I'll name you three great, great, great uh, Catholic writers that everyone, if you're Catholic, uh, should know about and read. Uh, uh, Dana Joya, mm -hmm. G-I-O-I-A. Mm -hmm. Incredible poet, essayist. Uh, he's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Never read any of his poetry, but I read an essay of his. I'm blanking on the name of it. Yeah. It'll come to me later. And he has a wonderful monograph called The Catholic Writer Today. That okay. If you read it, it will set you on fire because you will see how far down we have come from the 50s and 60s when we have had 11 Pulitzer Prize winning authors who were either Catholics or Catholic converts. Mm. And everybody treated them with respect in national mm. publications talking to them about their faith. So maybe the situation is kind of dire. The, we had the, 11 of those back yeah. then. Yeah, and we had, I think, 17 National Book Award oh, wow. winners 
and I think uh, Flannery O'Connor posthumous, excuse me, after her death, I'm gonna, <laughs> my my I've been talking too long. My lips are glued together. Uh, she was awarded a national uh, one of her books got a national book award after mm-hmm. her death. So I think that made it 18. Okay, um, and that was like something between 1925 and 1950 or something. Anyway, um, it so Dana Joya, uh, Paul Mariani, an incredible. Uh, biographer, a literary biographer, poet, and essayist. He has a, a set of essays on uh, God and the imagination that are just phenomenal. Uh, the biggest probably rising star on the scene in Catholic America, uh, literary, uh, arts, literary, and otherwise intellectual, uh, I think the term is public intellectual now, mm-hmm. is James Matthew Wilson. Okay. He's an Augustinian professor or Professor of Augustinian Studies, excuse me, at Villanova. Okay. People like that, poets like Jeremiah Walker, jo- uh, uh, fiction writers like Joshua Wren, spelled H-R-E-N. I mean, these these men are are setting the world on fire. I'm and sure there are some women in there, too, that you'd want to add to that list who are there setting the world on fire, too. Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, Sally Sally Thomas. Catholic okay. poet Sally Thomas. Okay. Yeah. Um, you'd mentioned already uh, the Catholic literary arts and uh, Houston Catholic poetry, uh, mm-hmm. uh, nonprofit. Uh, mm-hmm. What are those? How are they related? And, and what's the work of those organizations? Uh, Catholic literary arts, uh, I founded about a year ago. Its uh, mission is to guide, train, educate, and mentor Catholic writers of all ages. Mm-hmm. We start with third graders. Um, and go up my, my, I think my oldest student is in his nineties. Uh, so we have programming called fearless Catholic writing camp. We have a, a one week day camp in the summer at St. Thomas, third week of June. And then we also have, uh, programming in Catholic schools for an after school program once a week with the Catholic faculty member. Mm-hmm. And we'd ha- started our pilot program there. I actually, can I read you a poem from one of the kids real quick? Or are Absolutely. we running out of no, time? No, please, please okay. do. Okay, I just I attended this quote unquote graduation of first and second graders <laughs> at St. Francis de Sales uh, last week, and I have this poem from a first grader, and I I just think your listeners will be amazed at the imagination of this young lady. So here we go. Her name is first name is Catherine, and she's in the first grade, and the title is. I'm a dragon. (laughs) So, I'm a dragon. My scales are the strongest in the universe. My claws cut through towers. I eat meat, metal, and rocks. Fire rages from my mouth. I raise tall nightmares. Better than I could do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is really good. Yeah. Oh, I talk, just talk yeah. about that age group, and and yeah. you know, I'm assuming again that they're probably in a similar situation that I was in. That they're not, unless they have like a parent or somebody who is consciously trying to immerse them in poetry or literature in general. Um, they're not getting it at school. So when when these third graders come to your camps or your organization. Um, what, what is the attitude that they have? Do they, are they all in ready to go or do you have to sort of convince them there's something beautiful here? Well, it varies. Last year was our debut year. 
so uh, we had uh, most of the kids, some of the kids loved to write, couldn't wait to start writing. Sure. And then some of them were like, you know, my mom told me I had to come and, <laughs> and I hate writing and you don't care about me. Right. And so luckily, uh, since we want to provide a very high level of um, attention to the kids, we have two teachers in each classroom, uh, professional writers themselves and Catholic faculty. And so they work with the kids, a lot of it one-on-one, but also in the class to acquaint them with how much fun it is to write and Mm -hmm. use the imagination. Mm -hmm. So by making it fun, by making it Mm joy-filled, as an adult might say, kids would say fun, you know, we seek to just give them that opportunity to not be afraid of writing and teach them the skills Mm -hmm. that are essential for them not to be afraid. So even before the end of the week, uh, kids were coming to us and saying, you know, I love poetry. Mm-hmm. I like making poems. Sure. Okay, these are like the, the, the little boys that you can already tell they're going to turn out to be incredibly good football players. Sure. And they're like, oh, man, I love those haikus, <laughs> you know? And, and so uh, it's, if you make, if you connect a kid to the power and and fun of using the imagination, making up stories. Some kids prefer making up stories, some like poems. I mean, you know, it's it varies. We do a lot mm-hmm. of different things. We we had the older kids writing parables mm-hmm. for today's culture. Sure. Uh, and just mix it up a lot and and support them and give them the skills to do it. They love writing. Yeah. And if we as Catholics are going to depend on the other side to tell our stories in a nuanced, reasonable way. We're going to wait a long time. That's right. We're going to have to do it for ourselves. And we're going to have to do it with a lot of love, but we're going to have to do it with a lot of clarity and a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. So that's what we in in nonprofit, my faculty and I are trying mm-hmm. to do is we're starting to, we want to support the generations that are here, you know, already adults. Sure. But we also want to be building the next generation, and we want to connect both of those sets of writers with interested audience somewhere. Because I have, and and this is where a lot of my uh, programming for adults come in, Uh, classes in spiritual writing, classes in poetry. I just put together, uh, and we're getting scheduled, a wonderful class in mother the mother daughter spiritual relationship Mm. so we're going to have our chaplain there we're going to have readings uh, spiritual direction and writing Mm. for mothers and daughters to come together whatever the age i think the well i think the daughters have to be at least age eight but we're trying to because there's a great hunger among people in the pews for more i'm going to call it intellectual that may be the wrong word intellectual uh, bread. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a great hunger for more, again, the fancy word would be theological bread Mm -hmm. because there's only so much uh, a priest, a hardworking priest, even a a masterly priest can do in a seven to 12 minute homily. Yeah. But people are hungry. Everywhere I go, people are hungry for 
these, this kind of programming and these kind of classes. And the kids in school are hungry. Right. And all, all I need to do, all, well, I shouldn't say it that way. But what I'm trying to do is to give, you know, get my faculty trained. Mm-hmm. And I have amazingly wonderful faculty. They're all professional educators uh, and writers. And they, it gives them tremendously great spiritual rewards and emotional rewards to help the kids because they understand they're helping to build the next generation as well. Sure. No, I think you're 100% right. Uh, that's precisely the the impetus of the Center for Faith and Culture. Right? It drives us, the, the, that intellectual hunger is out there. So we do these podcasts and have our master's degree. So I definitely understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Well, um, you're probably an expert in it. Yeah. Well, well, not so much in literature, <laughs> but, you know, but the, the, the problem is they don't know where to, to, to satisfy go. that hunger. Yeah. And they turn to pornography and all kinds of other the things. history channel oh yeah. my oh, goodness yeah. the history channel oh, wow you know when i was a kid art a and e channel arts uh-huh. and entertainment was a good channel like they had quality biography i don't know if you remember that show uh-huh. but now it's just oh it's horrible there's, well, there's the, nothing artistic or really yeah. quality in it anyways i don't even own a tv oh, yeah. because if it's, i have spare time yeah. i i yeah. you know i sleep or or, or vacuum or something sure. but i've heard from other people like in bible study classes you're like yeah. well the history channel said this is this true about catholicism this is terrible and you're like yeah. no no no, no. <laughs> go go to catholic answers website and you'll right. find out the real history right. yeah if uh, anybody in our audience wants to learn more about your poetry or about the Catholic Literary Arts or the Houston Catholic Poetry Society, uh, how can they find you on the internet or so- social media? Okay, they can go to catholicliteraryarts.org and look at our programming, look at our classes, look at our, uh, our charter members, all of whom are great Catholic writers themselves. And uh, sign up for the blog because we're we're as we're as we get parishes because a lot of parishes come to us and they ask us to do the programming as it gets scheduled to the parishes. Mm-hmm. It is open to people who are not in the parish, sure. So they can find out where to go uh, on the blog. Sign up for the blog. Go to uh, our Facebook page as well, and uh, we will be delighted to help them out because we want fearless. Catholic writers. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Me too.